Well, it's good to see you all here this morning. If you're worshiping with us online, we're grateful that you're worshiping with us as well. Um, this is the second part of the Advent season. We built on the foundation of hope last week. Today, we're going to talk about the anticipation of peace. I don't know of a more relevant topic for our culture at, at this point in time than this whole concept of peace. Uh, a concept that seems to be rather elusive all the time anymore. Have you seen this new take on the nativity scene? I think sometimes it's called the hipster uh, nativity. Uh, skinny jeans and segues. And if you look closely, you can see Mary giving the peace sign. Uh, I like a nativity scene, but this one won't be appearing in the Ellsworth household, I can tell you that one. Um, but when the peace sign first really made its debut, it was the 1960s. And, and by the way, I, I don't think I've seen as much discord, disre uh, unrest, uh, discomfort in our culture since the 1960s. But it, it's different today. In the 1960s, it seems like most of the discord was directed toward the government for engaging us in what many deemed an unnecessary war in, in Vietnam. I still hurt for the men and women who fought for our country so bravely during that time and came home to uh, a great disrespect and an um, ungrateful nation. But today, the discord and the contentious spirit seems to be directed not just at things that are happening in our government, but seems to be directed at one another. I mean, people just seem to be angry with each other. We, we've lost that original meaning of tolerance, which was basically the idea that even though I disagree with you or you with me, we can have a civil discussion and we can respect one another for our divergent views. Today, there is often a visceral anger in the presence of one who sees things differently. Discussions anymore aren't peaceful. What happened to the art of extending respect and, and listening for the, for the capacity to learn? I may disagree with somebody. I may really disagree with someone, but I can always learn something valuable from listening to what they have to say. How can we improve if we don't listen to one another? We have lost our relational peace. Add to that the constant uh, fear of terrorism in our country, and we have a society that's as skittish as a terrified flock of sheep. I could describe our culture in a lot of ways, but I would not choose the word peace to describe it. And somebody's bound to say, oh, if we could just go back to the good old days. <laughs> what good old days are you referring to? Last March, or last month, marked the 53rd anniversary of the assassination of John F. Kennedy. This week marks the 75th anniversary of Pearl Harbor. Next year marks the 85th anniversary of the worst year of the Great Depression, 1932. And it marks the 100th anniversary of our entrance into the Great War, World War I. We just finished remembering the 150th anniversary of the war between the states. Just exactly when were the good old days of peace. May I suggest to you that peace has been as difficult to come by as long as human beings have existed in this world. Since 1919, the nations of Europe have signed more than 200 peace treaties, and, and not one of them has held. Each one seemed to be broken more easily than it was achieved. 
Historians have researched this from the year 1500 B.C. to A.D. 1860. More than 8,000 peace treaties were signed between nations or tribes intended to last for generations. These peace treaties lasted an average of two years. Peace of any kind is fragile. Job, in the oldest book of the Bible, says it best. Job chapter 3, verse 26, I have no peace, no quietness. I have no rest, but only turmoil. The search for peace is nothing new. It's as old as the earth. And the greater the anxiety, the greater for the longing of peace. The problem, folks, is this. We're looking for peace in the wrong places, and we're looking for the wrong kind of peace to begin with. We are desperate for a freedom from conflict that just isn't going to happen. God never promised that would happen. Jesus never promised that. As a matter of fact, Jesus said almost the opposite. Are you aware of this? Matthew chapter 10, verse 34, Jesus said this, Do not suppose that I've come to bring peace to earth. Huh? I, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Re really? For I've come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Man, that does not sound like the Jesus that the prophet Isaiah told us was going to come. This passage that we so love at this season of the year, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and are you ready for this? Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. So how do we reconcile what Jesus said, I did not come to bring peace, and what Isaiah said, he is the Prince of Peace. What did Jesus mean when he said, I did not come to bring peace? Didn't he know what Isaiah wrote about him? Doesn't he know we need peace today, that we are in a mess, and peace is what we've got to have? Yes to both of those. Yes, he knew what Isaiah wrote about him. And yes, when Jesus came to this earth, his culture was in a bit bigger mess than our culture is today, and he knew they needed peace, and he knows that we need peace. It's just that you and I got to understand what he means by peace, and you got to understand what he means by what he said when he said, I'm going to turn a man against his own family. Uh, and this is a strong word. It means to incite a revolt. It means to sow discord. Jesus is a polarizing figure. Here's the heart of what he means. His driving passion is for peace, but never at the expense of truth, discipleship, or commitment. Nothing must come between us and our relationship with the Lord. Jesus expects us to surrender everything to him. And whatever stands in the way of our full-fledged allegiance to him, he demands that we relinquish, whether that's family, material possessions, position, or, or notoriety, power, or authority, or anything else. You've got to let go of that if you're going to find him as Savior. And you've got to find him as Savior before he can be your Prince of Peace. And this peace, as in the Prince of Peace, is not the outward peace that we so often seek. The freedom from conflict. It is an inner peace that is independent of the circumstances going on in our lives. As a matter of fact, Isaiah captures that also in chapter 26, verse 3. 
you will keep in perfect peace him whose mind is steadfast because he trusts in you. There's the key. When you begin to trust in God, it is then that he can supply us with this peace. You see, the peace that we want is freedom from war, the freedom from fear, the freedom from worry, the freedom from personal conflict, the freedom from pain and problems. That's the peace we want, but it's not the peace we need. The peace we need is internal. It is spiritual. It is deep within our soul. But when that happens, we can handle the conflicts, the worry, the stress, the anxiety, the pain. The outward circumstances just don't cut it. So let me ask you this. What's robbing you of your peace this morning? If, if you're like me and you struggle with that inner peace, what is it that is robbing you of that inner peace? Could it be fear and worry? Both are debilitating, you know. Both serve as roadblocks to peace, you know. Both of them are not scriptural. You see, fear keeps us from living up to our potential. There are numerous surveys taken all the time about what is your greatest fear. And on these phobia surveys, uh, public speaking either ends up being number one or close to the top of every list. I, I read just recently in one survey, speaking publicly was the number one fear followed to that second, the fear of dying. Public speaking, and then second, the fear of dying. The fear, two, number two, the fear of dying. That means people at a funeral would rather be in the box than doing the eulogy. <laughs> we, we live in a world that is just full of all kinds of fear, and it is paralyzing to us from every aspect. Fear is an enemy of peace. Eleanor Roosevelt, former first lady, worked really hard at mastering her fears in life. Her advice was, do something every day that scares you. Now, it may be, it may be hard to find something every day that scares you, but it, you know what? If you step out of your comfort zone every day to do something that's uncomfortable, it builds your trust in God. Okay, God, if you're leading me to do this, I'm not real comfortable with this, but when you understand that he's in control and you trust him, the peace will come. Worry is another enemy of peace. Worry is the preoccupation with lesser things that we turn into priorities. Do I need to say that again? Worry is the preoccupation with lesser things that we turn into priorities. It is a false confidence that if we somehow resolve all of our anxieties, then we'll, we'll be at peace. In my, 60, in my six decades of living in this world, this is what I've discovered. The minute you get rid of one worry, another one pops up to take its place. It's like playing a perpetual losing game of whack-a-mole. You just aren't going to get ahead. The, the worries just are there all the time. That great theologian Charlie Brown once told Linus, he said, I worry about school a lot. I also worry about my worrying so much about school. My anxieties have anxieties. Does that describe you? Your anxieties have anxieties? You will never be at peace if worry is a priority. Rick Warren wrote, he said, if you prayed as much as you worried, you'd have a lot less to worry about. Maybe it's your perspective. How, how do you see yourself? 
How do you define who you are? Are you constantly comparing yourself to those around you who are more successful or more talented or more famous or or whatever? Are, are Are you constantly looking to others to validate who you are? It's hard to find peace when you're doing that. Most of us deal with this enemy of peace. I I know I do. There are others who serve in larger congregations or who've accomplished more in their lifetime than I will in two lifetimes. And I find myself wondering, could I do something differently? How can I do it better? How can I do it more enthusiastically? And peace is elusive in those moments. And, And I battle this, you battle this. You know, we're always looking around us. And and when I step back from the picture, I realize I'm asking the wrong question. What can I do better? What can I do differently? What can I do more enthusiastically? If if it's based on what I can do, if it's based on comparing myself to others, I, I will never be at peace. The real question is, what can God do if I just surrender to him? If I can just do my best, and I ought to do my best all the time. You ought to do your best all the time, but that's all I can do. All I can do is do my best. And then the rest of it, I have to surrender to God. Just do your best. Let God handle the rest. Don't let your perspective ruin you. Don't don't keep comparing yourself to somebody else. The only person you need to be following, the only person that needs to be in your comparison list and mine is Jesus Christ. Maybe it's your perspective that is messing up your peace. Here's another one, forgiveness. And by forgiveness, I do not mean your concern over being forgiven so much as I'm talking about your ability or our inability to forgive others. What do you think the Lord said in Scripture in his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, verse 14? For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. I got to tell you, I do not like that passage. That's a hard one. It's uncomfortable. Peace and the ability to forgive are intrinsically related. To hold a grudge and not forgive keeps us from experiencing peace. And it's not easy to let go. Most of us like a good grudge. Nurse it long enough and it will become a part of you. And we don't let go of those things that are part of us easily. You see, we are more accustomed to guilt than grace. We're, familiar with, we're more familiar with conflict than peace. A guest lecturer asked his audience to visualize the most peaceful scene in their minds. Gave them a few seconds to do so. And then he asked for what their picture of peace was in their minds. And uh, they began to relate. One of the people said it's a field with flowers and beautiful trees. Another This person spoke of snow-capped mountains and an incredible alpine landscape. And another person said, it is a beautiful scene, a still, placid lake. And I'm standing by the lake. Everyone in the audience shared their image of what a peaceful scene looked like. And then it came down to the end. They all had one thing in common. You know what it was? There were no people in the scenes. (laughs) Isn't that interesting? Peaceful and people are not compatible in our understanding of peace. You know why? It's because a snow-capped mountain can't hurt my feelings. It's because a placid lake can't do something to offend me. 
when we, when we deal with peace, we always direct it toward people in our lives. I don't know what you're struggling with this morning, but I know you're struggling. I do. Family, work, school, personal issues, the end is list. The list is endless. Learn how to forgive and, give, and let go of the pain. Let go of the grudges. Remember, being able to forgive is not the same thing as restoration. Doesn't mean, okay, I got to go out to eat with this. No, no, it doesn't mean that. And forgiveness is not letting the offender off the hook. Well, if I forgive him, he, he doesn't suffer. No, that's not it. And it's not saying, okay, it's all right. What they did to me is okay. No, it's not okay. The forgiveness is not doing any of those things. The forgiveness is, is us being able to let go of the grudge because without letting go of the grudge, we can't have the peace. Most of the time when we forgive, we're the ones that suffer. It's not the other person that's suffering. But once the grudge is gone, the peace of Christ can fill the void. So what is it that is keeping you from being peaceful? Is it your inability to forgive? Paul writes in Colossians chapter 3, verse 15, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Since we are members of one body, you are called to peace and be thankful. So how does God give us his comforting peace? Let's just take a look for a few moments at, at this concept of peace in the crossing. I'm just going to try and make it easy for us here this morning. This is what God does for us to give us peace. Uh, first letter of the word peace is P. God prepares us. God uses the challenges of life to prepare us for every new day. And when you look back on your life and you can see how God's been working, there's a sense of peace that fills our hearts and minds. Number two, the E, God empowers us. He fills us with the presence of his spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one that gives us that peace that passes understanding. It is the Holy Spirit that comes alongside of us and helps us get through the tough times of life. It's like the Holy Spirit comes and puts an arm around our shoulder. Now, here's the challenge. What the Holy Spirit does for us, we are supposed to do for one another in the kingdom of God. To whom are you coming alongside of to help? Maybe something really simple. Maybe something like a, an arm around the shoulder. In 1947, the great baseball player Jackie Robinson became the first African-American to play in the major leagues. It was not an easy transition. He put up with all kinds of garbage. Many of the fans and other players rejected the whole changes just because of the skin color issue in our country at that time. But not his teammate, Pee Wee Reese. During a game in Cincinnati, while the fans booed, the respected Reese left his post at shortstop, walked over to the new second baseman, Jackie Robinson, put his arm around his shoulder and just stood there for a few minutes talking to him. Everybody loved Pee Wee Reese and when they saw Pee Wee put an arm around Jackie Robinson's shoulder, the whole place quieted it down. It was a turning point in baseball history. It also sealed a lifelong personal friendship between these two men. Later, both were rightly so honored for their talent by being inducted into baseball's Hall of Fame. When Pee Wee Reese died in 1999, Robinson's widow traveled from her home in Connecticut to attend his funeral at the Southeast Christian Church in Louisville, Kentucky. The distance, she said, would not keep her from showing how much she appreciated what Reese did for her husband and for her family. 
It was just an arm around the shoulder. But it changed history. The Holy Spirit can do wonderful things in your life and through your life to help other people. It may be just an arm around the shoulder. It might be a handshake, a kind word, a simple deed of kindness. And, a, and it can accomplish more than hundreds of sermons. So let him lead. It is the way to find peace that passes understanding. Prepares us, empowers us. Thirdly, accompanies us, the A. Jesus said, I will be with you to the end of the age. I will come again and take you to be where I am. Now, I don't know how that is going to happen. I don't know when that's going to happen, but I do have these promises that he's with us to the very end of the age. He's going to accompany me, accompany me. He's going to accompany you through this life, and he's going to get us home to that place where we're headed. When that's going to happen, don't know. How that's going to happen, I don't know. I just know he's promised he's going to get us there. If you've been on one of those commercial flights at dusk and the pilot comes on uh, the, the, the headphones and, and he says, if you look out your left window, you'll see the most beautiful sunset you can see from 30,000 feet. But you're on the right side of the airplane. And when you look out your window, what do you see? Nothing but utter darkness. Or you're, you're flying during the daytime and the pilot comes on and says, now look out the right window and you will see the beautiful snow-capped peaks of, um, of, the, of the Grand Tetons. And you look out your window because you're on the left side and all you see is a barren valley. You know, the funny thing about an airline is, is that you can't see where you're headed. You have no vision up front. As a matter of fact, you can't even see where you've been. When you look out the side windows, you only see where you are immediately. So sometimes it's the mountaintops. Sometimes it's the valleys. Sometimes it's the beautiful sunset. Sometimes it's just utter darkness. But you know what? You're going to make it to the same destination no matter what your view. You're going to arrive at home no matter what you see out your window. You see, the pilot is always with you. The pilot is in control. And the pilot knows where the destination is. And he's going to go with you right to the very end. God is always with us. God is in control. God is going to get us home. He accompanies us to the very end. So no matter what look you see outside the windows of your life, you just know this. He's going to get you home. And that brings peace. C calms us. That's what his peace does. It calms our troubled minds, our racing emotions, our restless souls. He is a shelter in the time of storm. His peace calms. Last one, encourages us. God is peace in the midst of turmoil, and that always lifts our spirits. Jesus said in John 14, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled, and do not be afraid. As God has encouraged us, so we are to encourage one another. That's our goal. When we go outside these walls, it is to be an encourager because the Holy Spirit has come alongside of us because God is always with us to the very end of the age. We are to be an encourager to those who do not yet know him. I like this Ray Steadman quote. He said, in the eyes of the world, it's not our relationship with Jesus that counts. It is our resemblance to him. The world can't see the relationship, but they can see the resemblance, and it is that resemblance that will encourage them and bring peace. Tom Kloss 
Native American preacher some years ago during a time of reconciliation between racial groups moved everyone with the words of his message. This is what he said. Before the white man came to America, Native Americans owned 100% of this continent today. 2.6 belongs to us. But we forgive you. Before, there were 15 million buffalo that roamed this land, but you killed the buffalo to starve us and reduce the herd to 5,000. But we forgive you. 4,000 treaties were made, but only 40 have been kept. But we forgive you. Before the white man came to America, there were 10 million Native Americans. Our numbers have been reduced to 250,000, but we forgive you. The reason we forgive you is that if the white man had never come to America, we would never have heard about Jesus Christ. And that makes it worth it all. That's peace. The fact that Jesus saves cleanses, gives hope, gives direction. That's peace. Nothing else in the world can do that. No government, no document, no letter, no nothing. Just the Son of God. No wonder at this season of the year we celebrate the birth of the Prince of Peace.